The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. down that issue of Humvee Weekly and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 125 with guest Jeffrey Palermo, recorded live Friday, August 5th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, a leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just realized he has to live in an RV with Richard and me for 25 days, Carl Franklin. Without any pain. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, and you're listening to another great episode of .NET Rocks. Dare I say the original podcast, but ooh, somebody's you can't gonna, say that. Somebody's going to flame me for that for sure. One of the originals, anyway. And yeah, we've been podcasting since before podcasting, haven't we, Richard? Absolutely, Richard Campbell, my co-host on the on the West Coast. Yeah, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where it is hot, real hot. Yeah, on, uh, the in the tropics of. Uh, of Canada there. The tropics of Canada, where my AC for my server closet is going, dude. Yeah. What's up with that? I don't know. I got to go. I'm going to go rinse it out, try and cool it down a bit. It's in trouble. So did you uh, kill any hardware off yet? Or No, it, it hasn't gotten that hot. It's it, it got up to about 78 in there, which is hot for a server closet, but not hot enough to kill anything. Well, Richard, the first order of business is obviously the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2005 road trip, which is official. It's happening. It's happening. It's baked. And you can read all about it at .netrocks.com slash road trip, or just click on the goofy graphic that Dax made, which is actually pretty cool, I thought. He took about 100 pounds off me. <laughs> and it's I get one photo taken of me without my glasses on, and now I'm never going to wear glasses again. Yeah, that's right. And it's a, it is a pretty cool graphic. Anyway, what we're doing is we're hitting the road. We're going all across America starting October 12th, uh, ending up at the launch in San Francisco of Visual Studio 2005 on November 7th. And uh, we are hitting Boston on October 12th. We are hitting Hartford the next day. 
then New York, then Philadelphia, then Baltimore, then Washington, D.C., to Raleigh, to Atlanta, to Jacksonville, all the way up to Nashville, to Memphis, to Dallas, to Houston, to Austin, where our guest is from tonight, to Phoenix, to San Diego, to Los Angeles, to San Francisco, and then, and then, Richard, to Las Vegas, Nevada, Dev Connections, where we will be on the 10th, I believe. That's uh, 19 shows. That's insane. You realize by the time we do this, I have to quit halfway through, because that'll be my 50 show mark. That's right. That's right. All right, I'm done. I'm going home. (laughs) That's enough of that. This is a 25-day tour. Are you out of your mind? I'm crazy. I I don't know. I I want to I want to meet the people. You know. I well, I'm all over that. Yeah. Want to meet the fans? We've been hearing uh, from the fans by email for for years, literally years, and uh, we want to go out and shake some hands, and that's what this is all about. We're doing two things on the road, folks. We're doing. A, uh, a standard evening event at your local user group venue. Uh, and we'll actually have the venues and times and all of that stuff posted as soon as we aggregate them all. And we are doing two segments, three segments actually. The first part will be me talking about some new and cool things in VB2005, stuff you probably haven't seen, some stuff you may have already seen, but. You know me, I'm always full of surprises. We'll, we'll show you some content you haven't seen before, and it's all our content, by the way. And then Richard is going to talk toys. He's going to talk mobility development in Visual Studio 2005, and you're going to bring a bunch of toys, aren't you? Oh, yeah. It's going to be gadget land. There's going to be one of everything. It's going to be a lot of fun. In fact, I asked Dax, our graphic artist, to make the, the .NET Rocks mobile there stuffed with toys just falling out the windows, you know, like pocket <laughs> PCs and cell phones and smartphones. Uh, we're going we're gonna to really, really get into that. And in every city, we're going to give away a unit. So Something. We're, gonna, we're still arguing over what that something's going to be, but it's going to be something good. Yeah, we're trying to get pocket PC phones and smartphones. Um, obviously, we'll try to give away devices that work in that area. Yeah. You know, that would be bad. What I'm really excited about, and I hope to be able to show off, is we're trying to get some engineering samples, stuff that's so new that it'll be some of the first units out there. Right. And we'll also, we we think we're going to have an exclusive piece of software uh, from Microsoft about mobility, and uh, we will be able to give that away. But we're, we're, you know, so we may have some exclusive stuff. We don't know as of yet if it's going to happen, but that's what we're shooting for. Also, after that, we're going to do, uh, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes of a few sponsors' demos of products that we like, that we advertise, our sponsors on the show, uh, Telerik, Data Dynamics, uh, Developer Express, and a new one, Inner Workings, which we're working with. Uh, they do uh, testing uh, software. And uh, not not just testing software, but training software. It's interesting stuff. We'll talk about that. But wait, that's not all. That's not all. In every city, we're also going to record a .NET Rock show. Now, granted, it's going to be 10 p.m. and everybody's going to be dog tired. But we're looking for you. If you've got a story and you're going to be in one of these cities, if you've got a story about working with .NET 2.0, the beta, or you've got a success story of .NET 1.1, that nobody has heard yet, and uh, you want to tell the world, we want to to, to uh, find a quiet place to interview you, possibly in the RV itself, if we can wake Jeff up off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're going to have the equipment with us, and uh, we would like to sit down and talk to you. So our goal is to publish a new show every day that we're out. Uh, you know, the following day, we'll get it online. And, of course, we're going to be blogging and taking pictures and even taking movies while we're on the road for the next .NET Rocks movie, right? Absolutely. So, and it, For me, this is what excites me the most about this tour is the chance to meet you know, folks in their towns and talk about the software they built. And you know, a lot of the favorite .NET rock shows for me and for a lot of other people are just talking to people who've built software. And we're going to yeah. get a chance to do a whole bunch of these in uh, during the tour. I totally, totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I've I've enjoyed all the user groups that I've been to over the past few years. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's not a, a big volume event like this is. We want to stuff these venues and get people to come out and, uh, and drum up a little excitement. So that's what we're talking about at the, f- the top of the show here. Uh, but I guess that's about everything I wanted to cover uh, about the .NET Rocks road trip. I want to read some email now. Uh, just one piece in particular that we got from Max Healy. He says, Hi, Carl, Richard, and Jeff. I have been downloading .NET Rocks and playing it back on the way to work every Tuesday morning for several months now and simply want to congratulate you on the show. The show is professionally produced and full of good information. I can tell you this as someone who has worked in commercial broadcasting, radio and television, for the past 20 years. Much of that time was spent on the air. From that point of view, the show is fantastic. It's tightly produced and the content is well targeted at the audience. Anytime a guest is losing me, Carl seems to chime in with a, tell us about that. Even when, <laughs> <laughs> even when I'm sure Carl knows, that's how you say quotes in, uh, on the radio, by the way. Yeah. Tell us about that. You change your voice slowly, drop it. Tell us about that. Even when I'm sure Carl knows perfectly well what the guest is talking about, he also knows I may not. I've been, well, that's debatable, guy. Uh, I have been working as a developer in the broadcast industry for the last 10 of the stated 20 years when I saw an opportunity to put the programming hobby that I had started on the Commodore 64 to to some good use. Today, almost every commercial radio station in Australia uses some of my software, be it my web app for distribution of commercials or my digital audio playout system. You talked recently about the folks who still work in VB6 and have lost touch with the Visual Studio product. Because a large base of my code and most of the code that I am tasked with maintaining in my current job was developed in VB5 and 6, I was one of the people that were slow to move to .NET. I've used every version of VB, even VB-DOS, and when I came up against a version that could not open or quickly port the project I'd put the previous year into, I put it and the books on it away for a day when I was not so busy. It's a uh, common story. ASP.NET was my starting point for some internal intranet sites, and now armed with some experience in the .NET way, you guys and the guests on your show have inspired me to put the time in to porting some of my desktop apps to .NET to take advantage of the cool features. I'm still learning. I'm looking forward to Visual Studio 2005, especially ASP.NET 2.0 from the beta I downloaded. I am sure it will get the last of us VB6ers over once and for all. Keep up the good work. I love the show. Max Healy, Sydney, Australia. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that explains why he's listening to the show on a Tuesday. He's on the other side of the dateline. Right, right. And uh, did I mention, uh, Max, that all of the, uh, not that it matters to him because he's in Australia, but... Did I mention, dear listener, that all of the uh, the content we're going to show 
on this uh, .NET Rocks road trip is going to be in VBNet 2005. Yes. So, sorry, C-sharpers. It's, uh, you know, you'll still learn all about .NET 2000, in Visual Studio 2005, but we're just going to do the, uh, we're doing our demos in VB because that's what we know. Curly brace free zone. Yeah. Well, let's introduce our guest, shall we? Yeah. And uh, by the way, Sahil in the chat room wants to know, whatever happened to the flames? I guess he didn't hear last week's show. Uh, just in case you weren't listening last week, we've sort of decided that, okay, flames were funny. Now they're sort of getting repetitive. And unless you come up with a really inventive and really funny flame, nah, we're, we're done. We, I guess we're back to getting praise emails, right? <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to live with it. All right. Enough self-aggrandizing. Let's introduce uh, Jeff Palermo. Uh, I first ran into Jeff on this show. He was a caller when we were, had one of our first live shows um, back in, gosh, I don't know when, 2003, I think. And it was one of the first shows that we had experimented with live. And he called from Iraq. And he said that he was he called by net to phone. And he said that he was, uh, you know, listening to .NET Rocks in Iraq, and we just couldn't believe it, that there was somebody, you know, uh, in the military over there driving around in tanks listening to DNR. So uh, we asked him to, you know, send us an email, and we read it on the show a long time ago. You probably have a hard time finding it in the archives unless you search the transcripts or something. But, uh, you know, over the years, we, we kept in touch, and, and he works at Dell, He's uh, got a lot to talk about. In fact, when we asked him for some talking points, he sent us a 50K Word doc. <laughs> so, yeah, I got some talking points. Well, anyway, uh, not having much of else of a bio except that uh, that's how we know Jeff, and he's a, he's a developer at Dell working with a, obviously interested in talking about a lot of things. Let's uh, introduce Jeffrey Palermo. Hey, Jeffrey. Howdy, Carl. Richard. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you. Beautiful weather in Leander, Texas. In Meander, Texas? I live in Leander, Texas, northwest of Austin. Leander. I thought you said Meander, like, I'm on Meander over to Texas. <laughs> uh, we do a little of that, too. A little, like Mosey, Texas, it would be. So, uh, tell me about Iraq. How long were you there, and, and what was your experience like, especially with uh, access to technology and stuff? Well, I was actually in theater for a year and three days, and uh, I got called up. Um, it was February, early February 2003, and about 10 hours later, I was at a military base uh, getting mobilized, and uh, we, we contracted to build a house like five days before, and so my wife had to do all of that while I was gone. Ouch. So, I didn't. I didn't own a laptop when I left, so uh, so uh, we got shipped over. However, I did bring two like six hundred page books about ASP.NET because uh, you know, at work I was ramping up with ASP.NET. We adopted it in version one, um, but you know there's a learning curve. It takes a little while to learn it. So I, I brought that stuff and uh, some technical magazines. I got over there and. Um, the Army Signal companies had internet access, um, and people had to bring their laptops up to the uh, to the signal company's tent to actually hook up to the internet. Um, 
we were in Kuwait initially before uh, we got moved up into, into Iraq, and I found an opportunity to go to an ATM and withdraw a whole lot of cash and buy a Dell laptop from uh, Dell Kuwait in Kuwait City. Hey, Jeff, cool. i got to ask you, are, is your job in, in the uh, – now is it the Marines? No, I'm in the Army Reserve. Army Reserve. Is your job in the Army Reserve have anything to do with computers? It has nothing to do with computers. All right. Uh, I, was, I was deployed with a specialized transportation company that drives the big trucks that are called HETS. They're short for heavy equipment transport. They've got 48 tires. They're wider than a normal highway lane, and they're meant to specifically carry the M1 Abrams tank fully loaded, uh, which ends up being about 74 tons. Dude, can we use that for the road trip? <laughs> You know, it doesn't have air conditioning. All right. Ooh, Screw oh, that. Oh, oh. I want to. That's a deal breaker. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But top speed is 45 miles an hour. Wow. So you just you just floor it and go. And they don't stop very fast. So the unfortunate, unfortunate people who like to cut in and out of traffic and then stop suddenly, well, some of them got fender benders. Squished. Well, well, now you say traffic. You don't take this thing on a, on a regular road, do you? Well, we would drive on the Iraq highways wherever we could. Um, we, stayed off the, we stayed off smaller roads because we obviously didn't fit. But, you know, Iraqi civilians would, well, a lot of other countries, you know how they drive. Yeah. They just cut <laughs> in and out. And, well, they don't realize that, uh, let's see, the truck and the tank is going to be well over 100 tons, and yeah. it just doesn't stop that fast. Wow. So, so. so, you, so you're driving this basically – I, I can only picture like a house driving down the street, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's, – uh, I mean, it can fit it, – it, it fits in about one and a half highway lanes. Okay. Yeah, so, it's like a wide load house. Driving right. down the street, so, so you're you're driving around. So your job is to drive around. You must have been shot at a few times, I imagine. Actually, um, after after the third ID took Baghdad Airport and obliterated the Iraqi army, there there was no enemy except for the you know the roadside bomb or the occasional suicide bomber or somebody who. Who lobs a mortar round and then runs for the hills? So you got so, lucky. I mean, well, the United States military just—I mean—they crushed the Iraqi army so fast. It's just amazing, right? And I—I I, I think that I'm in more danger riding my motorcycle to work than <laughs> most people are over there. Um, you know, yeah. like the latter part of when I was there and even now. So you're riding around, and you basically, your job is to drive. And and, and that's why you were you would uh, listen to .NET Rocks while you're driving around most of the time, or while you were back at the barracks, or what? what's the, uh, you know, when, when we're, how did, how did .NET Rocks turn up in your life down there? Well, I discovered it after I was able to get Internet access over there. Okay. So I got my laptop, and... Then I worked out a deal with the with the signal folks that said, "Yeah, you can hook into the internet, but we don't have any Cat5 cable for you to use. You're going to have to get your own." 
So I was able to work it out with the you know the discretional money, and we went into Kuwait City and purchased some uh, some switches, a router, two DSL modems, and a bunch of Cat5 cable. Hmm. And I ran Cat5 to all of the tents in the company area because we we just set up <laughs> big tents out out on the sand in the desert. Wow. And uh, I set the two DSL modems between us and the signal company because it was it was too far for Cat5 cable to work. So I had to use copper pair between the DSL modems and then switch it, you know, analog back to digital on each end. A true geek. You yep. are. Still Cat5, just not Ethernet. Right. DSL signals. So, uh, so I, I got my crimpers and my RJ45 ends, and I, you know, just, I made the cables, and I ran them where they, where they needed to be, and I had it, I had it come in and had the, sw- had the switches uh, next to my bunk so I could fix any problems, and then I distributed it to the rest of the company tents from there. <laughs> and so I could plug my laptop in uh, when I wasn't on the road, and I was able to actually overnight, I was able to download from MSDN Visual Studio 2003 when it came out. Huh. And so I was able to browse, and I discovered the .NET Rock show, I think, when Russ Fustino was on. Okay. And so I downloaded all the back episodes and had plenty of plenty of listening hours when I was out on the road. And then I just kept up with it. And well, I think you did it every two weeks. Yeah, we used then. to do it every two weeks. Well, I was chomping at the bit, you know, yeah. for the next show to come out. Yeah, we uh, we used to do it every two weeks because, if I remember correctly, Mark Dunn was the host, and uh, both of us were sort of getting flack from our families that, you know, this sort of hobby thing that we sort of started was consuming a lot of our time. And, you know, we weren't as committed to it um, back then. It was still just sort of, it was just a, it was a liability, you know, it was a, an expense of time and money. Um, and then we, you know, started getting more serious about it, started getting sponsors and it became a real deal. But anyway, so you set up a blog, right? Yeah, I set up a blog initially on Blogspot and it's still there actually. You can go to jpalermo.blogspot.com, but they allow you to edit your own templates. So I added a meta refresh tag to forward it to where my current blog is. Okay. And what is, where is your current blog? My current blog is on CodeBetter.com, along with uh, a few other few other bloggers, and uh, I also alias it on JeffreyPalermo.com. It just automatically forwards to CodeBetter. All right, so if you if you type in www.JeffreyPalermo.com, probably a lot of people blog. already subscribe to the main feed of CodeBetter because it you know syndicates quite a few bloggers uh, who originally came from .NET junkies whenever the uh, whenever yeah. the, the dot text errors started mounting up, and this was your really your first exposure to the dot net community. Uh, no, it wasn't actually. I had I had uh, gone to the Austin dot net user group meetings before I got deployed. Okay, there was an Austin dot net user group uh, very like right after dot net one zero came out. Right, so I learned quite a bit there as well. Scott Bellware. Um, is an is C sharp MVP very active in the community, and he started it. Um, and he and I are actually working at the same company right now. I left Dell over a month ago, and I'm at a company called Fluck. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I keep saying that you were you're from Dell, and because uh, that's how I remember you. But yeah, that's right. You've uh, you've started this new company, and I want to talk to you about that too. 
Um, but you do have a lot of real stuff to talk about, not just .NET Rocks in Iraq. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of .NET things. In particular, uh, application architecture. You've got some what I would consider uh, uh, opinions that run contrary to conventional wisdom. Yeah, and, well, I would say not conventional wisdom, but they run contrary to what you would read from MSDN, probably. All right, so what, do you, what are you saying? So, um, for one, like, especially at Tekka, there were so many sessions on service-oriented architecture. Mm-hmm. And you talk to other people and you say, you know, what is the service? What does it mean to be service-oriented? And you get a lot of different answers. And so much so that it's really hard to talk about it unless you talk for a while first and agree on the definition of a service. Because yeah. once web services came out, now a lot of people are starting to equate services with SOAP or remote, where for a long time a service was just some process sitting on a box ready to be contacted. Right. We've had Windows services for a long time. There have been services on Unix. Right. So service has had a definition for a long time, and now there's another definition that people are talking about, and so it's just confused a whole lot of people, and, and I'm really confused depending on who I talk to. Uh, so, yeah, I, I got to say that uh, I, I share your confusion. We've we've had some people on the show talking about SOA, and uh, you know, it, it, it's really true that the people that are that are talking about it seem to be, uh, except for like some very broad ideas. You know, nobody's got it baked down yet. Well, and it's pretty darn hard to find apps out there that would, quote, comply. Right. So what does it mean to be, like, one of the four tenants, autonomous? Does that mean that everything used by the service can't have any other dependencies? And that's just, that's hard to do because, I mean, you've got applications that already exist that are already connected in some way. Right. I can, I mean, I can relate what we did. I was at Dell for four years, and so you say, oh, well, you know, large enterprises might need a service-oriented architecture for some things. And so, you know, Dell's a very large technology company. has got a large IT department. And we, I mean, we've used Windows services. Uh, we've used distributed complex, And we've used web services. But from... From everything that I've seen in Dell, you don't really need what people are saying is a service-oriented architecture because there's going to be applications that already exist, have existed for some time, and all you need to do is most of the time, but um, it's like, for instance, we had to connect a Java system with a .NET system. We don't need to change it to make it comply with maybe the four tenets of service-oriented architecture but all we needed was a web service endpoint, and boom, the two applications are connected. Um, they can speak in an asynchronous or synchronous manner, depending on what you need. Right. And it works great. Your enterprise systems are connected, and that's all that the business requires. Yeah. So you think SOA is sort of an ideal that if we could just start from scratch and design a brand new system over again, we might, you know, without any dependencies on existing technology, we might consider, you know, this. But uh, so. is that what you're saying? That it may well, be more no. of an ideal for the future than something that's practical now? Or, Well, I don't even think 
I don't even know how a a group of systems that were all services would, would be manageable because you have all these independent things distributed for what business reason? I'm thinking about what business reason would prompt that. Usually, a business needs something. They need an application. They need a coherent application, and then sometimes they might say, you know what, we've got this and it works really well. We need for this other application over somewhere to be able to use it. All right, fine. You don't need to redesign the application. Just make an interface yeah. that the other application can contact for a particular usage. Okay. But, you know, when I see the same organization in control of both sides of a problem like that, I think, well, they don't need all this extra stuff. These guys can go get a beer and figure it out, you know, decide how they're going to make that intercommunication layer. Stuff like SOA presumes this idea that I'm going to have two completely separate companies with two totally separate applications, and they're going to be able to connect together somewhat automatically. And I just don't buy that that's true, that people are going to actually do this. Hooking software up is hard. It's very intensely intimate detail oriented yeah intimate that's a great word richard you know intimate not only from a technical point of view but also from a business relationship point of view you are not going to have third parties connecting to your app in an automated way yeah and not have some phone call beforehand right and another thing is i've seen some developers use a web service part probably they're prompted because of all the hype surrounding it and they control the client, and they control the server, mm -hmm. and they're communicating with a web service, serializing the text for every call. But they control both ends of the wire, and in fact, they're on a gigabit network. And, I'm, and I think to myself, why are you using this slow transport mechanism when you could use a faster one, and you lose nothing, and you gain performance? Well, you know, if, if I could play devil's advocate, I would say... Uh, in case using a binary formatter sort of locks us into to that formatter that might not be available in something that we develop or tack on in the future, right? So a lot of a lot of problems with software come from things that aren't open enough and flexible enough to change when things change in the future that you have no idea what what they're going to be. Right. Right. And I I think that web services are are really useful, but I, I don't buy all the hype that everyone says is service-oriented architecture. Because I think of service as an interface into something. Yeah. And once I get into that something, it ought to be good old object-oriented, component-based, a good domain model, and the service interface is just that. It's a way to get to it and use it. Okay, let me get on to the next point because you got a lot of them. Rad is evil. Explain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Private application development. Um, well, I, I realize that it's a large part of the market um, out there for Microsoft, and, and they've done a lot of things with Visual Studio 2005 to make Rad developers happy. They've enhanced drag and drop and all that. And, you know, a lot of that... For some applications that just need to be whipped up fast and they're going to be thrown away or, or they're not going to have to maintain it and keep up with it and change things as time progresses, yeah, you might be able to you know, drag 
a data grid on it, uh, enable editing, and connect it directly to a database table. But for for large systems, or you know, really for any system that you can foresee lasting a while or support, supporting the business on an ongoing basis, you need it to have a good design, and you need to structure the code in such a way that's coherent. Um, that, that that's it. That's it. I've seen the light. I'm going back to Notepad, folks. All right. <laughs> No, 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 Jeff. That's let not me. What I'm saying. No, no, no. I know. I'm just being. You know, any opportunity for a joke is what I'm all about. Yeah. Um, um, do you do you think the two are mutually exclusive? Good design and rad. Um. Well, you know, I I wouldn't say yes because that's like that's kind of extreme. However, if I'm if I am dragging and dropping. Everything that everything that my application consists of, it makes it very hard for me to monitor how the design is going. Now, if I if I can isolate a few things that well, if I were to write the code, I would write it the same way as the designer is going to generate it for me. That may be appropriate, but that's what I think of as rad. Well, what I see in practice is people just opening up some some web project, they drag a data adapter, they connect directly to SQL Server, and connect right there in the code behind with the database, uh, you know, hard coding connection strings and all that stuff, and they never even look at the code. The code is never code reviewed, and it's all generated for them, and they, they don't know what the code is doing. All they know is that they dragged and dropped and now it works. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you. Uh, uh, my rule is, and I tell all my students this, don't use any wizard unless you know exactly what code is being generated. And, and like it. And like yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the essential problem is that just like uh, agile development or extreme uh, programming models, people often use the term as an excuse for lousy work. Right. Oh, no, the reason it's like that is I did it rad. That's my excuse for making crappy code. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so I wouldn't say rad in and of itself is the problem because I think that even time has proven in this community, in the VB community, that there are, are people who utilize the tool to its fullest potential, and then there's everyone else who, uh, you know, well, they make crap, you know, the people that uh, just drag and drop and do the very minimum uh, tool, you know, tool usage in order to make something that gets them the desired result at least once. So well, maybe uh, we could make another version of Rad, and that's um, and that's a version of Rad that does not use a designer. That's a version of Rad that maybe is heavy on code snippets and perhaps uses something like CodeSmith, where it generates stuff, but you are still monitoring the code and you are still actually writing code and seeing code well personally i wouldn't want to design user interface without a designer so really? i'm not going to give that up anytime soon but uh i, I but, haven't designed a user interface with a designer in probably a year oh uh, congratulations i hope you enjoyed all that time that you <laughs> wasted <laughs> well how are you building your interface you're, you're working in on the web though right all right, so yeah. I'm, we're talking about apples and oranges. 
I actually okay. Windows Forms, yes, yes, I would use the designer. Yeah, okay, thank you, because uh, because I've done I I I can make the argument for doing uh, you know, web development in a text editor, and I've done a lot in text editors myself. I don't think the rad tools are as good for the web, just because uh, of the nature of the beast. Yeah. So well, the bottom line is that if you could have a good GUI environment for building web pages that really generated stuff the way it was supposed to, and the code underneath was not hideous, you'd use it. Well, yeah, and if especially but the if the reality under- is that it is it. It's horrible, horrible code that gets generated that way. And if you understand what that code is doing, and that's I think the key that Jeff is is uh, keying in on is that don't use a tool as an excuse not to learn something, right? Right. And it's also very hard to make a web application that is going to look good in the different browsers and um, be standards compliant. If, yeah. If your markup is being generated. Yeah. I agree with that. The tools are not standard compliant right now. Yeah, this is a failure of the tools. It's not necessarily a failure of the concept. We're just still, to this day, you know, 10 years later, we're still not there. Yeah. Right. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, shipping with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. The other thing that I was going to mention is that, you know, often marketing of development tools and sales of development tools, which is ultimately what makes them uh, viable in the marketplace and keeps you employed using them, right, often requires these gee whiz, draggy, droppy, wowie, wowie demos, you know, And, and and so that kind of stuff is just baked in. When, when you take my class and we're talking about data adapters, for example, I say, all right, first I'm going to take 10 minutes and show you magic. You know, I'm going to show you the magic and we're going to suspend all reason and, uh, and, (laughs) you know, and and query. And we're just going to, you know, I'm going to drag, drop, boom, boom, boom. There it works. Isn't it great? And then we spend the rest of the day diving into what this thing is doing, the code that it's generating, what's good, what's not so good, what are the issues, et cetera. So, yeah. 
All right, so let's talk about. Uh, so you say that you're developing web stuff. What uh, what can you tell us about web standards? Well, that's that's something that we definitely have to do uh, for Shadows.com, and and that's the application that I'm working with at, at my company right now. It's it's a uh, a tagging, rating, commenting community system where you can you can make your own uh, make your own search engine, tag your own pages, um, and we. We officially support Firefox and Internet Explorer. So the what? site has to look and function in both browsers. What does this thing do again? I'm sorry, make your own search engine and tag your own pages? What does that mean? Right. And, when, for instance, when you create an account, one of the first things uh, it'll ask you to do is import your bookmarks. Then, whenever you log on to shadows.com, you can have bookmarks no matter what computer you're on because you, you can tag pages with as many keywords as you want, oh. and then all you have to do is just you know search back for them, and you can find them. And then, of course, you can see what other people have tagged as well. And okay. uh, it, it has a community aspect to it. Neat. So, what's this uh, creepy picture on the front all about, anyway? Uh, or, or maybe I did it with one D. Is it one D or two Ds? Shadows dot com plural. Yeah, is it one D or two Ds? Shadows. It's one D. 1D. I went to Shadows with 2Ds and I found a creepy, creepy oh. looking picture. Sorry, I'm trying to spell and I can't. All right, so this is cool. So it's a beta app. You, you basically uh, set, it looks like you upload your bookmarks, you say. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, after you create an account, that's one of the things you can do to start out is upload your bookmarks. And you can, you can tag any page. The paradigm is that every page on the Internet can have a shadow page, okay. which is a page about that page. Oh, cool. Where people can rate it, tag it with keywords, and start discussions on it. No kidding. Wow. But it, it could turn every every news uh, article into a blog post with comments. Very cool, my friend. This is neat. This is running on .NET Beta 2. Huh. And, and is this uh, your brainchild? Uh, me and the handful of other guys at Pluck are, are doing this. Very cool. So you're obviously a big standards guy, and I know that you're really into XHTML. And to be honest, uh, we haven't really talked that much about XHTML on this show. Uh, a little bit here and there we've given a little lip service, but I know it's been around for a long time, and yet uh, we, you know, we haven't really discussed it. So why don't you, why don't you tell us about XHTML? Okay. Well, anyone, anyone want to learn more about it, I would say go to, the, go to uh, w3c.org and just read up on what it is, because that's, that's where you'll find the standard. Um, right now, uh, we, we've progressed. Like, we've had HTML 3.2, which I'm, I'm, most people probably cut their teeth on HTML and then settled on writing HTML 3.2, where you still had font tags. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and we've been doing that since 1997. Right, right. <laughs> and then came along HTML 4. Uh, we got... Cascading style sheet support, and now we're moved on to XHTML, which is seeking to move X, which is seeking to move HTML into a more XML-like markup. And so, XHTML trend 1.0 transitional is probably the highest standard that we could shoot for, because ASP.NET 2.0 even is not going to render uh, valid XHTML strict. 
So we're kind of limited. But XHTML also will support the HTML4 uh, markup tags. And that's why it's transitional. I think and maybe the... F- I think maybe the first thing that people, the first experience people have seen with XHTML is, you know, why do I have to close close all these paragraph tags, right? Right. That was that was the first hint I got that somebody was thinking XML like about HTML was when all these the paragraph cl- uh, tags started getting closed. And well, think uh, about the think about the vision. If if all of our web pages end up being XML then how easy would it be later on to just use the XML DOM to change different parts of the page right there in the browser? Well, first of all, whenever anybody says XML DOM, I go, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, you know, the, whatever mechanism I know, there is. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Right. So so, so you're basically turning turning the, the HTML data into XML data, essentially. Well-formed. Okay. And we're not there yet, and like even with even with ASP two O, if you put an XML declaration at the top of your page, it's going to break in the browser because not all the controls render valid XML. Yeah. Um, you can, however, go with the, the the transitional doc type. And what most people do, though, is a lot of people I talk to have never heard of what a doc type is, and I think that's really important because that defines what standard that your web page is implementing. If you don't put a doc type at the top of your web page, then every browser that looks at it has to guess as to what type of markup it is. And you might not think that's that's a big deal, but we have HTML 3.2, we have 4.0, we have 4.01, and then we have you know three sets of XHTML. I mean, if if they don't choose, if the browser doesn't guess uh, the one it actually is then it's not going to look how you intended. And Most people only test their web pages in Internet Explorer, and so they don't really, they don't really design it with the standard in mind. They, they kind of do trial and error, and after it looks good in IE, then they put it down and say they're done. But Internet Explorer operates in quirks mode when um, there's no doc type defined. Right. And, or it might also be called compatibility mode. Yeah. I found that the quirks mode will pretty much let you write HTML 3.2 and still render reasonably well. It will try to guess and compensate for any errors you might you might have. Yeah, one of the best arguments I've heard for using XHTML uh, rules and for adhering to it is that on a computer, on a PC, you know, the, it's powerful enough. It's got enough memory and it's got enough processing power to overcome those you know the 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 tags that aren't closed and to to fudge around and and figure things out but you know when you're on some mobile devices and smartphones especially they don't have the processing power to do that kind of uh stuff to do that kind of parsing and logic so you you have to uh be well formed right right um if you use xhtml you will also get um better rendering css for instance right. Um, if you use HTML4, the rules for CSS are different than if you use XHTML. For instance, have you ever noticed that if you maybe use a font, if you use a font size, a relative font size, like 85%, and then you have some, some tabular data inside a table, you have to repeat the styles 
for the table cells because the, the style doesn't flow through like you intended it to do. And those are really yeah. uh, HTML3 artifacts still. I mean, it's literally like it's maintaining compatibility with those sorts of weird flaws that existed in the old HTMLs. Right. Well, if you, if you use XHTML, then you can set your styles and the effect of them will flow through every element to, to the, the lowest part of the hierarchy in your web page. Yeah. This is also a characteristic of Doctype. You're telling the browser, look, don't maintain that compatibility. I'm doing stuff properly. Exactly. And it makes it a lot easier to write your CSS styles and to get it working like you want. So it'll, it'll save so many headaches. Yeah. But one other thing that, that you might find surprising is the default web form template in Visual Studio 2003 um, will put an incomplete doc type for HTML4 on, on your page. But, you know, most, most people don't even think about it, and they'll put their page out there, and it has an incomplete HTML4 doc type, which um, will still cause Internet Explorer to operate in quirks mode and try to compensate for any errors that might come along from HTML 3.2. But you can fix that by, by adding the complete URL for the DTD inside the Doctype tag. Yeah. So, Jeff, you've been using ASP.NET for, you know, in production for, for quite a while. Do you have any uh, insights and, and tips, any nuggets of information you could offer our listeners? Yeah, yeah, I do. I can, uh, I can say that if you get frustrated with the IIS binding for an ASP.NET web project, that you can't get away from that. Um, I've been using, in 1.1, I've been using a class library project for my websites, and that this gets away from having to have IIS configured in the same uh, virtual directory as all the other developers working on the project. Uh -huh. I know quite a few other people out there um, in the blogosphere doing that, but uh, you know, some people haven't tried it, and I think it's, it's, it's worth trying out. Have you, have you done that, Carl? Yeah. You mean making an HTTP handler just in from a class? From scratch? No, using using a class library project instead of a, an actual web project. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I have done that. Okay. Um, also, another, another interesting thing is uh, making friendly URLs with URL rewriting. Um, I do this a lot in my content management system, EasyWeb, and sometimes it's real beneficial for you to have a URL that might not exist on the file system but be, uh, for instance, mysite.com slash product slash product ID. And how you process it may be with an ugly query string, but it gives the user a friendly URL to bookmark and to email to someone else. And for that, um, in, in one one they added a method to uh, the HTTP context just for that purpose called rewrite URL. And if you, add a, if you add a module or in the global AS, ASAX file, um, you can call that method on authenticate request, and it'll actually rewrite the internal URL to be processed while the friendly URL stays in the user's browser. Huh. Wow. And some people don't like using that because if you do a postback, it'll still go to the ugly URL. You can right. get around that also 
by rewriting the URL back to the friendly URL um, on the event, uh, I believe it's pre-send request headers in, in your module. And so you rewrite it to the processing URL just so that it can process it and get a page out. And then right before it's sent, you rewrite it back to the original URL. So from a user's perspective, it's actually executing the same page, but on, on your application, you may have a single page, a single ASPX for the entire application, but your system may have many, many distinct URLs. Hey, Jeff, are you up to speed on W3C specs? Uh, Mike was asking about uh, the W3C, the rumor that W3C is going to retire the div uh, table, layer I, layer, and span, and come up with a new structure altogether. You know, I have not heard that. No, I hadn't. I hadn't either, and and uh, it just seems so unlikely. Although, admittedly, that whole group of functions are pretty screwy. Yeah, there now a lot of people are talking about tableless layouts and CSSZenGarden.com. Yeah, we had that on the show a, f a few shows back. I think it was uh, the the uh, Scott Hanselman show. A just unbelievable site. Scott Hanselman blew our mind. Right, but. And, and, you know, they have some pretty good designs, but the current version of CSS still isn't perfect for columns. And so you're going to run into some column problems. And I'm, I'm sure that if you live and breathe CSS, the CSS experts, you know, might be able to do a column layout you want. But I, I'm pretty good at CSS but I still can't get columns in some scenarios to work exactly what I want, like I want to. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, for instance, if I want a, a three-column layout, and then in the center column, I want that divided into a few other columns, well, it's really hard to get a table of design with just divs and spans because when you start floating elements, it, just, it, it, it breaks. The flows mess up. Right, right. so like float right or float left, and yeah. I mean, I, I've I've tried for hours to get some complex column layouts just without tables, but I I go back to using a table just for columns, and then everything looks exactly like I want it. Now, tell me this: why why uh why is why are why is using tables a bad thing? I mean, that's what Scott was uh, whacking me for saying. You know, don't use tables. You know, I do use tables. Why why is that bad? Yeah, I'm not an extremist on that subject. Um, the, whole, the whole argument is that tables are for tabular data. And I, you know, years ago, like everyone else, I laid out. They're obviously not just for that. That's, right, what, yeah. that's what Scott said, too. Well, yeah, and I'm reciting the argument against tables. Yeah, right. That's, so years ago, I laid out entire web pages where if I needed something to be positioned, I nested a table in another table that was in another table that was in another table. Yeah. And I got some really horrendous markup. Well, now what I do is I use a div if I need to stack things on top of each other. Okay. Because a div is a block element, and it's going to cause a line break. Um, but for columns, I still use a table to break columns. Yeah. So you and have one master... I find that to be a good combination that works really, really well. So you have one table split up into maybe three columns if you've got a three-column page, and in each column you've got divs and spans. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So do you think there's any uh, any uh, improvements that could be made to uh, dynamic HTML to support better column support in, in CSS? Well, if you look at some of the um, some of the things that W3C is working on, the next version of CSS is supposed to have specific um, specific product, property modifiers to address column layouts. So I think that they recognize that that's a deficiency. Because yeah. if you and go to any CSS forum and you know search for columns, there's all kinds of people having problems with them. And this is what uh, ties to the conversation in the chat room about whether or not uh, the W3C was contemplating deprecating div and span and iLayer and all that stuff in lieu of some new structure, which, of course, they can't really deprecate anything. We're always adding new features and never taking away. But I, I'm sure everybody would love a better layout system than what we've got right now. Yeah. But, yeah, so the next version of CSS does promise some... Uh, some new column attributes. Okay. But one one interesting, interesting thing is you know that if you just start another ASP.NET project from scratch, you you uh, put a you know ASP colon panel on it and then open it in a browser other than Internet Explorer, and I've tested specifically with Firefox. What you don't get a div like you expect it to. You get a table with a single cell and a single um, single row because Firefox out of the box is not recognized as an up-level browser. And I looked at ASP.NET 2.0 in the beta 2, and the only recognized browsers are Internet Explorer. So all the other browsers are recognized as down-level browsers, and the ASP.NET controls will render down-level HTML because of that. So that may be another reason why websites look different in Firefox if you're using ASP.NET, because you think that you're putting divs all over the place, and they're actually getting rendered out as single-cell tables. Yeah, that's really got to change. It's time to recognize the fact that there are other browsers out there that are capable of HTML4 properly. Well, I can see both sides, because Mm. for ASP2, yeah, I was kind of surprised that they didn't put built-in knowledge of Firefox since you know, since it's out now, and I guess they're saying that it's it's got, uh, of the non-IE browsers, it's got more market share, but since they don't control the, uh, you know, the lifespan of that browser, I can see not shipping knowledge of it, but it does require um, you and I to add something to our web.config to mitigate that. Yeah. Because, there, you know, there's a browser caps section that you can fill out the web.config, and that's what we've done for Shadows because we have to support Firefox. And so we, we add that knowledge of Firefox's capabilities to the browser caps section in the web.config, and then the, the built-in web controls do render um, the same markup as they give to Internet Explorer. Well, and that's, that's really all that needed to be done. It's not like they have to write a tremendous number of code. It's really a recognition that Firefox does understand that up-level mode. Right. And out of the box, just people that open up the IDE, slap together a website, and then put it out there on the live web, that they're going to be rendering down-level markup. Yeah, you might as well be running Netscape 3. Right, exactly. Right. And other stuff, too, like, for instance, um, if, you're put, if you put a data grid and then you define some styles for the data grid, well, you know, up-level browsers, it's going to render inline CSS right there in the markup. 
But for the down-level browser, it's going to render font size equals whatever. It's going to render Lots HTML3 markup tags yeah. for all that formatting. Yeah. Nasty. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, uh, ASP.NET 1.1 and 2.0, how compatible are they? The runtime is almost um, completely compatible from what I've seen. There are a few breaking changes, but most people either will not run into them or will be able to quickly work around them. Um, one thing when, that, that I ran into immediately, um, I logged a bug against them and they said they wouldn't fix it. it but it, it is minor. I was able to work around it quickly. Was, um, for a login control, I, in a particular scenario, um, I would do a post back, and on the, on, on the event handler, I would evaluate something and do a server.transfer back to the same page with some different information. And when you do a server.transfer, um, typically the, the form post variables in 1.1, the form post variables do not come with it, only the query string. Um, well, they changed that in .NET 2.0, where um, you can, you know, you have a parameter that says keep the query string information. Well, now that parameter in 2.0 will keep the query string and the form post information. So what I just did is I, I post back to the form. It does a server.transfer back to the same form. And now in 2.0, because the form post uh, information comes with it, the .NET runtime thinks that I'm doing a post back on that guy also, and it goes into an infinite loop of, of server.transfers. Yeah. Yeah. So in that scenario, yeah, it's an incompatibility, and my project wasn't a seamless upgrade. But once I found out what was happening, you know, I was able to work around it. Do they, does Microsoft know about it? Yes, I did log a bug with them, and they said that that was a design change and that they're not going to change it. Yeah. So their answer was, don't do that. Don't exactly. do that. Their answer was, change it. But, you know, after I changed it, I, I guess it's no big deal. Yeah. If they had a good reason for doing it. Um, the IDE is the thing that changed the most. Um, for web projects especially. For instance, yeah. in 1.1, well, there is a project converter that you can run through, and it'll, it'll do most things for you. But if you have perhaps a, a base class for all your pages, and in your base class you make a reference to maybe a header control that has to be on every page, um, and... You know, because of that, you don't have to declare a protected member and every code behind because your base class has that member already declared for you. And as long as, as long as that maybe a user control or custom control is in the markup, it's going to get wired up correctly, and your base class will be able to control it. Well, with the partial classes, because that partial class is going to declare that variable for every piece of your markup, there's no way for you to inherit the member from the base class and any interaction with it you were doing from the base class will break. So you yeah. have to do some work around to get that stuff working again. Um, aside from that, the web project is fundamentally different, and I'm, I'm happy with it in some cases, and I'm very unhappy with it in other cases. For instance, the, the uh, of course, the IntelliSense everywhere is awesome. Yeah. And there's even... XML. Now, 
Yeah, there's better intelligence for CSS, for JavaScript. Um, XML. Yeah, yeah. Yep, XML. Um, the web.config, if you have the proper XML namespace right. declaration, you'll get intelligence in the web.config. Yeah, it's um, good stuff. And if you choose to write some thin pages that have maybe your page load in the uh, in the markup side on script run at server, you'll get IntelliSense in there. Very um, cool. But they got rid of the web project files, and it's all file system based. Right. Now the good part about that is is they got rid of uh, a file binding um, in the web project, but the bad part is. Now there's no place to store a project reference. So when you add a reference to a web project, it's not persisting it anywhere. It's just copying the current binary to the bin folder. Well, that's going to cause problems when you have shared source uh, repository and a team of developers um, that are all working on the project because maybe, maybe a, a version of the binary changed somewhere. Well, if you have a project, it'll detect the new version of the binary and pull it over. But this is just file system based, so it'll continue using the old version until you manually copy over the new version. Wow. So that that, that was different. a pain. Another pain is that um, because there's no project file, they took away pre and post build events. That is a that was a big one for us coming from version 1.1 because we use pre and post builds. For what? Um, uh, we use them for, for maybe changing settings in IIS, for um, creating some, some directories, for running some database scripts. I mean, since the web project pretty much owned, well, it, the web project was at the top level of the solution. So when we deployed, um, when we deployed with Inant, Inant would use a solution task and just, you know, do the whole solution. So all we had to do was add some pre and post build events right. or anything that was required, you know, after the other project built. So really good for distribution. You know where I first heard about that technique is from Chris Kinsman. He was doing that too. And, yeah. and I also found out that uh, I think that Visual Basic didn't have those events and C Sharp did. I think I remember really? hearing that. Yeah. It's hmm. interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can... But now they've gone away in 2.0. Right, they've gone away. So now we have, to, we have to have a workaround. So now we have the second level project in the solution, which is a class library, doing the pre and post build events just so that they will happen when we do a build. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's very frustrating. And I wish, now, do you I wish that there was a project file. Was the uh, was, were the events being taken away uh, by design, or is that just a feature they hadn't gotten to yet in beta two? No, by design, hmm. by design, and no uh, no explanation. I mean, no alternative. No alternative. Well, yeah, you know, I, I I really haven't heard all the arguments for it. Okay. Um, maybe maybe this this show will prompt some discussion around it. Maybe, but it, in our work group, um, running into this. We are seriously, and we're actually leaning towards um, not using web projects in 2.0 as well and using a class library. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are attached to the IDE and you need all those IDE and designer features 
then you'll have to use the web project setup. But if if you're not shackled to the designer, then and for me, the class library project and would be for um, a website is, I think, a better option. Jeffrey, tell me about Pluck. Pluck is a uh, software company in Boston, and they have several products. One is an RSS reader that it's, it's an add-in for Internet Explorer, and they also have an add-in for Firefox. It's a web-based reader um, that's enhanced by the browser add-in. Uh, it it kind of competes with blog lines. You have to be connected to the Internet to, to read your feeds. And it also has uh, something called Feed Finder, which is a, an RSS feed search engine. And um, the other main product is Shadows. So it's, it's really two-pronged. The, the RSS reader and Shadows. Uh, Shadows also has a toolbar for Internet Explorer and a toolbar for, for Firefox that allows you to, to tag pages as you're browsing. Okay. Um, the company has about 26 people. Um, the entire company has deprecated .NET 1.1, so we're an all we're a, we're a .NET 2 shop now. Okay. Wow. We uh, brave. <laughs> yeah, we're we're experiencing the pains, but you know I, I'll be able to I'll be able to take those lessons learned and and tell my user group and hopefully save them some time. Well, you're first out the door on a lot of this stuff. Now you've got the go live licenses stuff. Yeah, we're we're we do, and we are in production. With everything on beta two. Cool. Hey Jeffrey, we're coming to the end of the show, and uh, you know, if you've been listening lately, I've been asking my guests, "What's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately?" The coolest thing I have downloaded lately. Uh, I should have been prepared for that question. And, you know, probably the coolest thing that I've downloaded lately is the latest version of Tortoise SVN client for Subversion Source Control. Tortoise. And is, do you have a web URL for that? TortoiseSVN.Tigris.org. T-O-R-T-O-I-S-E? Yes. SVN.Tigris.org. And it's one of the many clients for, uh, for Subversion. And probably many of the listeners might be using Visual Source Safe. And I, I think Subversion is a, uh, a superior source code control system. Okay. Cool. One other thing that I've discovered, um, this is actually on the web, and it, it, it works with this Tortoise client, is something called OpenSVN. And this is a public, free subversion repository that's, you know, that's hosted. Um, it's OpenSVN.CSIE.org. And so I, I have a personal source code account, and for personal projects, I now have a versioned backup of whatever I'm working on. Cool. And it doesn't cost a dime. Wow. Neat. So there's a lot of a lot of source code, uh, like CVS and Subversion, that you can pay for, but this one's free. Very so cool. That's, that's very cool. What's the URL for that again? Um, OpenSVN.CSIE.org. So now everything I'm working on basically has has a version backup that is not at my physical location. That's cool. Well, uh, we're um, we're just about out of time. So, uh, Richard, you got any last minute questions for uh, no. Jeffrey? 
He's answered all my questions and more. Yeah, that was great, man. And and it's just such a pleasure to have you on the show as a guest. I know we've been emailing all these times, and, and it was really a... Uh, I ho- you lifted our spirits as much as I'm sure we did yours. So uh, with with the contacting us from Iraq, that was re- that really tickled us. Well, it really helped me to keep uh, up to date on what's going on in the industry while I was gone. Yeah. And by the way, thank you for your service. I appreciate it. our listeners appreciate it. I'm sure. Thank you. And uh, well, thanks again for being on .NET Rocks. Well, oh, it was uh, all my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, we'll see you in Austin on the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2005 road trip. Yes, October 28th. Yeah, and uh, in Austin, Texas. Right. And, uh, That'll be a blast. All right, man. Take it easy. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy. Life is hard.